This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is the second episode of our two-part series on Koheleth, otherwise known as Ecclesiastes, a sacred text from both the Christian and Jewish traditions. And last week, we explored the challenges of reading a text that is so old and the challenges of understanding a translated text from uh, any language, as well as the, you know, the rhetorical situation in this particular book. We situated the book by claiming it was either written by the King of Solomon of the Old Testament or at least in the tradition of King Solomon, uh, a man who's revered as a prophet king in the traditions of all three monotheistic traditions. Uh, we also claim that it is a book of philosophy. It is not a historical book or a narrative like many other books in the Old Testament, you know, nor is it primarily a book of poetry, although we will read a poem from it today. And it discusses difficult things, uh, contradictions innate in the human experience, uh, what we call dualities. These dualities, um, as they read in the text, make the work appear as if it contradicts itself, and in, in some sense it does, but that is the paradoxical wisdom of it. Um, humanity is the contradiction. You know, one example of this is when Kohel claims all labor of man is for his mouth and yet the soul is not satisfied. But then another chapter claims that there's nothing better that a man uh, should, should do than rejoice in his own work. <laughs> These two passages on the surface do contradict each other, and yet this seeming contradiction will make sense as we follow Kohel's full line of reasoning going through this text. And Today, we're going to try to find at least one big common theme that brings this and other dualities into a manageable focus, and uh, sounds like a challenging thing to do for a piece of wisdom 3,000 years old. Well, exactly. Contradictions and dualities. I mean, life doesn't make logical sense, and why not? This is at the heart of understanding Ecclesiastes, and the first of these dualities is the problem the writer references 38 times that we talked about pretty much the whole episode last time, the problem of Hevel, a phrase Koheleth introduces in verse 2. 
Hevel Havalim, said, saith Koheleth, Hevel Havalim, awe is Hevel. Or as the King James states it, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The whole of life is vaporous. It's in a constant state of flux. It dissipates. It's a dynamic substantiality. Everything is unstable. Everything is fluctuating. Existence itself is incessant change. And yet our heart yearns for the opposite. Our heart yearns for the eternal. Kohelet claims that eternity is written in our hearts by God, and no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And this too is Hevel, because Hevel also means absurd. The logic does not follow cause and effect as we understand cause and effect to work. The ways of God are Hevel. We are starting off very (laughs) deep in philosophy right here. Uh, Wow. So, you know, Christy, we stated last week uh, that unlike other sacred texts, um, according to Jewish tradition, Kohelet's audience was not solely a Jewish one. Uh, you know, that Kohelet was a speaker to an assembly. It's a message about life under the sun for all peoples. Uh, and as such, he confines his wisdom, the earthly wisdom, wisdom to, to be applied to life on earth. And this is not a book that looks to the afterlife. Uh, tradition suggests this advice is for a broad audience, many of whom likely were not even monotheistic and perhaps even atheistic in the time. Well, exactly. And, and there's a duality to that as well. Last week, we focused almost exclusively on the universal nature of some of the ideas contained within the book and really didn't focus on the divinity at all. But we cannot do that and understand the whole of the argument. To understand the full argument, we must recognize that even though many of the listeners were not Jewish or even monotheistic, Koheleth explains life in terms of a creator God. And here's one more duality. He's not actually going to argue that you have to believe in God, but he will argue that in order to live a life of happiness, You must live your life as if there was one. And God, according to Koheleth, because I know you want us to define our terms, Gary. (laughs) God, according to uh, Koheleth, means the existence of a personal God who oversees the lives of man, who interjects himself into human existence, who has built, and maybe this is the key thing here, a framework of universal laws from which we cannot run no matter our beliefs. In other words, gravity will be gravity, whether you believe in it or not. Eternity is in your heart, whether you acknowledge it or not. And I'll quote him here. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, no matter how much you try. They are laws that govern both the physical and existential world, and you cannot circumvent them because they are part of this creative ecosystem that we are a part of and we can't escape. He speaks from the authority of one who has pushed the extremes with infinite human wisdom, infinite wealth, excessive human power over others, and still has been forced to acknowledge and accept the laws and the consequences of violating the laws of a higher power. This admission is at the heart of Koheleth's line of reasoning. So this episode, in light of that, we will take a different approach at looking at the text, a more Jewish approach, because 
Although there are a lot of maxims that stand on their own with no need of an explanation, it would only be a partial understanding of the message as a whole if we didn't look at the Jewishness of the text, the religious argument. Uh, Christy, you threw out an English term on us, as you are prone to do as an English <laughs> teacher. What exactly is a maxim? Explain that for us. Sure. A maxim. You know, those, those, those phrases, they're eternal truths, a fundamental principle, basically a rule of conduct. You might think of it as a quotable line, a proverb, something a smart person would say and you could quote. Um, some of them are short, but I'll quote one that's not short because I like it from Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Uh Two is better than one, so he's given us a tip. <laughs> exactly. You know, in this case, uh, don't try to live by yourself. You need people in your life. Exactly. And, of course, this is true. It stands independently. Even today with Amazon and Google, it's very true. Two is better than one. Uh, here's another one. It's one of my favorites uh, in the whole book. Do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times, also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Uh, you know, in other words, choose to not get offended by what people say. I mean, because you know you say crap, too, about other people. So uh, that's great <laughs> advice in the day of social media. I know. You know, Ecclesiastes is full of these pieces of advice, words to live by. My students would likely benefit if I just put poster of these all over my room for them to read when they tune me out during the day. I mean, they're a lot of fun to read. And although we're going to talk about the overall theme of the book, I, I wish we had time to break them all down because every one of them is practical advice. They're fun to read. Uh, especially if you think that they're coming from a philosophical sacred text. A lot of them have to do with managing your money and, and how to navigate successfully a work environment. You know, Solomon wrote another book called Proverbs, and it, it works the exact same way. So there is value in just reading both books just for the maxims. However, there is a unique line of reasoning that connects all these maxims together, and that line of reasoning is religious. It's Jewish. So to better follow the thinking, it's helpful to have a little bit of understanding of Jewish religious faith and practice for listeners who are, like myself, of a different faith tradition and, and may not necessarily be familiar with Jewish festivals or maybe have never even heard of the festival that is connected with the book of Ecclesiastes called Sukkot. Gary, we know that the book of Koheleth is traditionally read, although it's not obligatory, but is traditionally read during the festival of Sukkot, or in English, the festival of tabernacles, which is something observant Jews all over the world to this day celebrate. So explain to us, what is the festival of Sukkot? Uh, of course, and, and you said it's a festival. Sukkot is a week-long uh, Jewish holiday that comes five days after Yom Kippur, and most of us have heard of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a high holiday. It's introspective and solemn, but Sukkot is the opposite. It's um, celebratory. Sukkot means booths, and uh, as part of the celebration, Families build one at home and they dwell in it at least part of the time during the week-long celebration. Uh, you are especially encouraged, uh, if not to sleep in it, at least to eat your meals in it. 
Sukkot is one of the three great pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish year and a festival of Thanksgiving. You know, it's known as the time of our happiness. It's about celebrating, partying, dancing, togetherness, and a lot of it is practiced in the home. Meals are eaten in the sukkah or the booth, which has no roof but a thin uh, thatched structure, uh, by the way, so you can see the sky. But there are also synagogue services and a larger community-wide party, and it's during Sukkot that these gatherings that Ecclesiastes has read, which on first pass can seem strange since it really has such an existential twist to it and a slightly pessimistic vibe at times. So think about it. You got everybody together, kids through adults. You have a huge feast with eating, drinking, wine, partying, dancing, celebrating, and someone gets up and reads, vanity of vanities. All is vanities. <laughs> Well, uh, again, but what better holiday to remember that life is a vapor and in constant flux than at a holiday devoted to harvest, which in and of itself is a time of change and where you're sitting outside and eating under the stars. For sure. Uh, You know, but as in all things Jewish, um, there are layers of meaning and the meaning of Sukkot goes deeper than the agricultural elements, uh, although those are important. Um, In a uniquely Jewish sense, uh, Sukkot is different from Thanksgiving or other harvest festivals because it highlights a special moment from Jewish history. Uh, If you remember from Jewish history, Uh, or the book of Exodus in the Bible, when God brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, they wandered for 40 years and they dwelled in temporary dwellings. The Sukkot huts represent that. And um, during that moment of political history, Jews were in an obvious state of transition, you know, a state of homelessness. They were refugees, and it's like all refugees, uh, they needed God's protection in an obvious way. Uh, They didn't have homes. But of course, the modern application is that today, whether we are homeless or have a fine home on an existential level, this, of course, is still true. Life is still in a state of constant change and uncertainty, and so the Sukkot's in the backyards of people's houses our physical reminder of the spiritual um, truth. The reading of Koheleth, or Ecclesiastes, um, starts on the first night of the festival, which is a Sabbath day, or in other words, a holiday. I think knowing that this text is read in this context on this day brings a different perspective to the text. The activities around Sukkot, the uh, festival, also support some of the big ideas in the text. First, the Sukkot themselves are a reminder that life is like a vapor. But the other ideas that we're going to bring out as well, uh, one being that joy is found in our labor if done in a moral way, and another being that when lived morally, life is to be celebrated fully and celebrated communally as a celebration of our work. And this is what we best do with other people, hence parties are valuable things. Can't disagree with that. (laughs) And so with that set up, uh, we can imagine ourselves, you know, listening to these words read by a rabbi after we've had dinner outside in a booth. I think we're ready to tackle that second big idea in the text, the value of work. It's the question that opens the book. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Who has not asked that question? Uh, It's a question my students at school ask me at least once a week. 
Why are we doing this? What's the point of this hard work? I mean, it's a natural question, and especially if we're doing something that's hard. You know, as you know, I recently ran my first half marathon, and I was pretty miserable the entire time I was training, and I never stopped complaining about it the whole time that I was training. And what was the question you asked me every time I complained to you? <laughs> it was a deeply existential philosophical question. The question was, why are you doing this to yourself? Exactly. That's the question of Koheleth. If we read it from the Orthodox Jewish Bible, we see that once again they employ a Hebrew term in the English text. Let's read Ecclesiastics 1.3 from the Orthodox Jewish Bible. What profit hath a man from all his amal, which he hath toiled under the shemesh? So I guess, you know, amal is a word for labor and shemesh is a word for sun? Yes. What we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we can actually see this in the English translations without a lot of trouble, is that there are two kinds of work. One kind of work is what here we see the Hebrews calling amal. This is the kind my students don't like. It's labor-intensive, exhausting, unpleasant effort. Amal, spelled A-M-A-L, denotes something that is wearisome. It wears you out. It causes you pain. Interestingly enough, though, when we see the term for the works of God in Ecclesiastes, the word amal is not the word used. Instead, we see a different word. The word for work is masse. That's a noun form, M-A-A-S-E-H. And I know that might, you know, make you blurry-eared thinking about it, and it sounds like we're getting technical, but hang on, it's not too technical. So the idea behind the word masse is work in the sense of its creative output. It's when we engage in an activity that produces something. Now, it could be evil because, you know, the works of evil, evil people also can have a creative output, And it can be used in that way. But the idea most often is when it's used in a positive way. Although in chapter 2, when Koheleth is lamenting the fact that everything is hevel, he gets down on the fact that his work, even his creative output, can be hevel. And it was a lot of trouble to create. (laughs) Okay, so uh, let me try to simplify. Um, We're saying when we see the word labor in the text that we should think about exhausting wearisome, unfun aspect of work, but when we see the word work in the text, uh, that we should think about the creative aspect of the word, um, the idea of producing something, the creative, the artistic, or maybe even just excellence or doing something real and well. Exactly. And that's why we're calling the concept of work a contradiction or a duality, because work we will see is two things. It's vaporous, but it's also rewarding. And those things on the surface don't seem like they could be true at the same time. But Koheleth will argue that they indeed can coexist. But to do so, a condition has to be met. And this will be the motif that will make the line of reasoning work throughout the text. Labor, even intensive labor, can be worth it when we add a moral element to it. In other words, when we make something good, it turns from just being amal or laborious to being a gift from God. Work that is rewarding in and of itself. Work that brings happiness. Something that brings fulfillment. A touch of the divine. And anything can be like this. You know, um, that reminds me of uh, the famous speech uh, 
Dr. King delivered in Chicago uh, at the New Covenant and Baptist Church, and that was titled The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life. And he was reflecting on something uh, he learned from a shoe shiner in Montgomery, Alabama. And he said this, uh, when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, I went to a shoe shop quite often known as the Gordon Shoe Shop. And there was a fellow in there that used to shine my shoes. And it was just an experience to witness this fellow shining my shoes. He would get that rag, you know, and he could bring music out of it. And I said to myself, this fellow has a Ph.D. in shoe shining. What I'm saying to you this morning, my friends, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, Go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. (laughs) Yes, uh, and Koheleth tells us why that is so. How could we possibly feel satisfaction in a job that doesn't have prestige or power or financial compensation, at least significant compensation, like shoe shining or or street sweeping. Koheleth will argue God gives us happiness from it. The happiness of work can be an effect of financial compensation. And for sure, that's no doubt. I'm not taking away from that at all. But there is a happiness that also comes from the hand of God when we are able to see the goodness in our work. Let me say it another way. We can actually enjoy the creative creative aspect of our work, the output of our work when we do it in a morally excellent way. And what I mean by that is we make whatever we're doing good. In Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says this, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Let me say it a third way, because I do think this is a very hard idea to grasp. But there is actual joy that we can actually feel, even if we've labored intensively and not just doing a job well done, but when we take the time after we finished that job to celebrate our accomplishment. Let me give it. The example in light of my experience running the St. Jude Marathon. As I've already said, I was miserable all through the training. But as I ran and I saw the children with cancer lining up down the road, waving at me, and I saw the signs of people holding up signs thanking me for running because they're survivors of cancer or family members of survivors of cancer. When I cross the finish line and a smiling person congratulates me and gives me a medal, I can tell you this, I did not care anymore about the amal. The joy that I got from that moment compensated for the rest of it. And this concept applies to big things and little things. I mean, obviously, I think it's why actors are happy when their peers award them with Oscars that acknowledge and celebrate the excellent craftsmanship in that field. When we, I assume it's what inspires soccer players to fall on the ground and raise their hands to heaven when they make goals. Sure, it's a competition, but the happiness also comes from the fact that it's an accomplishment of goodness. It's a statement of excellence in itself. Even if we take it down a notch to everyday life, 
We see happy people are the ones who take pride and joy in a clean and well-cared-for home, no matter how fancy or simple it is. It's why teachers celebrate with students when they pass AP exams or get into great universities based on test scores, because those test scores speak to the excellence of both teacher and student. It's why farmers sit on their porches and enjoy looking at their fields. And I want to talk about our good friend, Charlie the Carpenter. (laughs) He builds with craftsmanship that is unparalleled. And it doesn't matter if he's making something out front or if it's a patio in the backyard where only a few people might ever see it and enjoy it. But there is happiness and joy to be had in doing something beautiful and well done. You know, in my line of work... I enjoy putting up poems on my wall that students have written per my instruction, and they enjoy showing their friends what they've written. There is joy in creative work, and Koheleth tells us the reason it makes us feel good is because we feel the divine hand working in our lives and rewarding that which is good inside of us. Uh, You know, that's a really interesting idea, and one you could sit back and think about for a while. Well, it is, and it has a broad application. Koheleth will circle around to this idea over and over again, and he'll revisit it in light of other incongruities in the world. We see it in chapter 3 after that famous poem about time and basically how time is completely out of our control. He says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. He says it again after he discusses oppression in the world. Well, and and of course, that's what the holiday of Sukkot is celebrating. I mean, it's a harvest festival. It's about enjoying the fruits of labor. And and I've said it many times before, uh, even knowing it was in the Bible, that I really enjoy sitting down and admiring my work when I finish, you know, no matter how big or little it is, or or even if it's just sitting down and, and looking, you know, at the Christmas tree after you've decorated it and put it up in the living room. And uh, I especially like to do this if I've done work on the house, you know, if I've painted a room or whatever, I like to sit and uh, look at my work. So do you like to have your cake and eat it too? <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Well... <laughs> Yes, and clearly King Solomon agrees with me, or should I say I agree with him? Uh But let me point out uh, that so many other thinkers have stated similar things. I mean, uh, the famous Swiss philosopher Carl Hilty had this to say, There are but two possessions which may be attained by persons of every condition, which never desert one through life, and are a constant consolation and misfortune. These are work and love. Those who shut these blessings out of life commit a greater sin than suicide. They do not even know what it is that they throw away. Rest without work is a thing which in this life one cannot endure. Hmm. That's an interesting way to say that. Rest without work is a thing which in this life one cannot endure. So free time is not fun if it doesn't come after work. And that's something to think about you know, if you're really, really rich, or, or maybe you're thinking about retiring. <laughs> well, it is. And I think if you are fortunate enough to be able to retire, thinking about what to do in retirement is the big existential question. Well, let me shift away from talking about work itself and talk about the work of this particular writer. Koheleth, as he constructed this book, namely, 
how is all this wisdom organized? Because he does go in circles, and it could feel like there's not a structure to follow. Uh, yes, and, and I can see the circles just following this idea of work. I mean, he talks about work and labor, then he talks about something else, then he circles around to it again, and then says, enjoy your work. Well, exactly, and, and the role of voice is used in this book almost to create a dialogue, as if the writer is talking to himself Maybe he's discussing it with a different person who's bringing up the other side. Um, Some have even said it's a conversation between multiple people. Uh, It it doesn't matter. Either way, we clearly see different circles that voice different perspectives on the same thing as the writer struggles to find cohesion in the dualities of life. You know, it comes out for me when I watch the writer alternate his pronouns because we watch him alternate his pronouns and he can switch the point of views with these pronouns. For example, sometimes he uses the first person. And so we have to assume, well, this is Solomon speaking from Solomon's point of view. The first person, I. He says things like, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Well, that sounds like the voice of experience. He's stating, I've learned that if you work hard and you actually become successful, you're buying for yourself a lot of envy from the other people in your life who aren't as successful as you are. I have seen this and it's Hevel. You know, he does this with other things that he's clearly claiming to have experienced. And actually, envy isn't the worst of his observations. You know, things get darker and darker. They just go down from there. For example, he says this. There is one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. <laughs> you know, Solomon had a thousand wives, and yet he is talking about being alone? Exactly. And remember, he says, I was king. He situates the experiences of his life in the past tense. This rich guy doesn't live out the happy ending of companionship like the father of monotheism himself, like Abraham does, who in the book of Genesis is said to have died in a good old age. We see these first-person passages switch from talking about his personal experience to the second person where he gives practical advice on how to keep our frustration level down. And many of the things he talks about in these second-person passages are problems identified after watching years of incredible amounts of pointless injustice and oppression, which I find very interesting coming from a guy who was king and who had slaves. And theoretically, if he wanted to, he could have controlled some of the stuff he's complaining about. Well, you know, exactly. Even he couldn't rein it in, uh, not even within himself, and presumably not with even those people under him, for sure. You know, my absolute favorite of these oppression maxims is this one. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Meaning don't be shocked when people in power exploit people with no power. High officials watch over high officials. And that should sound ironic because you would expect high officials to watch over the people they're supposed to watch over, but they don't. That's because there are ones that are over them and on the cycle goes. (laughs) It's a good thing that this podcast is not a government podcast. We could spend several episodes camped out right there. 
You know, so uh, basically the vulnerable will always be exploited, even by those looking out for the vulnerable. Uh, so don't even be surprised. Life is not fair. Yes, and that is Hevel. These passages are the ones, by the way, that can get really pessimistic. It's just the endlessness and inevitability of corruption. It's a depressing thing. We keep hoping for honesty and virtue and power, and and we're wired for fairness. But the 3,000-year-old injustices he highlights are the very same ones that we have today, be it business, politics, sports, or entertainment. And so the writer goes from first person to second person meaning he stops saying I, and he switches to you, telling us, don't be surprised when we see this kind of thing or that kind of thing. Don't let it frustrate your sense of fairness. The economy of God, the rules of the universe do have a sense of fairness, do have a sense of justice, I guess I should say, but it's not ours. And the only consolation for all of that is what he calls the severe evil, which he which he sees under the sun. It's strange to call this a severe evil. I mean, uh, but the consolation is that the rich do all that hoarding. And the only consolation is that it's Hevel. I mean, they go back to the dust exactly like they came out of the dust, naked, like all of us. That's what he says. Exactly. It's almost like riches could potentially cause you to miss the boat on life. Because after he goes through all these injustices and oppressions, he will again circle back and say, it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of his labor. He calls labor and eating and drinking after labor a gift from God because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. And that's a quote. This is where I see most distinctly the two polar opposite voices. On the one hand, the skeptic pointing out all the injustices that violate our God-given sense of fairness, and that is countered with this counterverse saying, yeah, uh, let it go. You can't control it. You'll never control it. It's Hevel anyway. Look to find joy in what God has given you. And God's gift to man is not ultimately the gift of wealth. It's the gift of work, how you spend your days, your time be it in great wealth or great poverty. By letting it go, he says, looking forward, look to the future, forget the past. Gary, it's it's a strange perspective. Well, it is. And he is making it a theological issue or essentially um, a proof of the existence of God, which is also interesting. You know, the uh, traditional view of God in most people's minds is being this great arbiter of justice and uh, the executor uh, of what we think of as karma and what goes around comes around, you know, making sure everyone gets their just desserts. And, you know, look at what evil this person has done. And I'm not and I'm going to wait and see that eventually retribution, if not by me, but by the universe will compensate (laughs) them. I've thought that myself. Well, there's a psychological reference called the just world phenomenos that has been observed that, that, that plays in that. And although he references God over 40 times, he's not making that claim at all. Um, in fact, the execution of justice is not the proof of the existence of God that we are all inclined to believe. Uh, God in Ecclesiastes does assume the role of universal judge, but how he executes his judgments is hevel. 
we cannot ever understand it or see it. So it becomes pretty pointless looking around for it. Um, he's going to tell us that we will never understand the ways of God, or he says it, as you do not know what is the way of the wind, or the bones, how bones grow in the womb, or of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who make everything. So, if you want to see how God intends to make your life happy, which he does, don't look to figuring out God or his creative output. And don't look for sweet revenge beyond yourself, for yourself or for others or or at all. I mean, don't look for something that will satisfy your human sense of justice. All of that is hevel. The effect will not align with the causes. And, you know, look forward, go to work and work creatively and with excellence towards something good and rejoice. Uh, I did notice that was a command, too. And this is, again, a lot of deep philosophical stuff. Yes. uh, There are conclusions at the end of the book. Rejoice. Remove sorrow. Put away evil. Know that dust will return to dust and spirit will return to God who gave it. I mean, these are all written as commands. Rejoice means have fun. You will have sorrow. It's implied in the idea of putting it away. You will have it, but put it away. And how can we put it away? Through work, through creative work with a moral purpose. Remember your creator. He says this various times. Remember your creator. Fear him. And by fearing, you know, you you do what somebody says when you fear them. And here's the idea as I understand it. And it is a monotheistic worldview. The earth is a created thing, created by God, and called good seven times. We know this from Genesis, not from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes reminds us that it is plagued with injustice and oppression. Ecclesiastes says the more we know, the more sorrow we invite into our lives. But the anecdote to sorrow or injustice is not leisure or rest from hard labor, but work. Creative output, but not just any creative output, creative output that is moral, that which is good, creative output that is then celebrated for being good, celebrated with eating and drinking with people we love. This is in the second person. It's a command. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. And that's the heart of the argument. And his concluding remarks will sum it up even more succinctly than that. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. In light of everything he has said, These remarks are not to be interpreted to mean fear God so he'll keep you out of hellfire in the afterlife. Kohelet has zero interest in the afterlife. Fear God, in other words, follow God's moral laws. And of course, in Judaism, these laws are clearly delineated as a guide to a moral life in one way or another. But know that it is all vapor. We own none of it. We are meant to take care of our world, loving each other, If you do this, your work, which you labor in community with others, will bring you fulfillment, a real inner satisfaction that can only be achieved by doing this, and then by celebrating the good or the divine that you have created in your world. 
So as we conclude this second episode, let's go back and read what is perhaps the most famous passage in the whole book. The passage is written as a marismus. Oh, there you go again. A marismus. That's, that's another literary word. Tell <laughs> us what it is. Well, it's when you state polar extremes as a way of embracing everything in between. For example, when you say, I looked high and low for my keys and I can't find them. You're using two extremes to say you look everywhere. The Bible does it a lot. For example, Genesis says, evening and morning were the first day. Obviously, it's everything in between. But anyway, this poem is a list of 28 items that are opposites. Now, why does that matter? We're talking about 14 pairs, a multiple of seven, the archetypal number of completion. It's not a coincidence. Perfection. The writer did it on purpose. This is our lives. There's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning or even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Life is time, our time, the time God has given every human on earth. Life is about time, and the writer lists out what it is that we have in this time for all of our labor, but it'll circle back again to our moral, creative output. Whether you believe in a God or not, whether you believe God is personally interested in your life or not, if you live your life based on the assumption that He does exist and you follow His moral guidelines, in other words, doing good, and I don't mean by not doing this or not doing that, but by the intentional good creative output you produce with your hard effort, this will bring you fulfillment. And happiness comes in those moments when you sit back, eat, drink, and enjoy the goodness or the reflection of the divine you have put into this world. That is the antidote to hell, at least as I understand this text. (laughs) I'm a literature teacher, not a theologian. It's certainly complicated, but I do think it's something like that. Well, I, also not a theologian, but, you know, a psychology and history teacher, agree. I mean, it's certainly food for thought. Um, As we go into a new year and think of new challenges for ourselves, uh, you know, let's not have the goal of making life easier necessarily, but create a goal that will make it harder, more challenging uh, to ourselves, you know, through a moral, creative work of excellence this year, uh, what we can build that is good. And, and after we do it, let us take a moment to admire it, celebrate it, enjoy it, 
eating and drinking with those we love. That sounds a little like the philosophical uh, explanation of, you know, put in simpler terms, work hard, play hard. (laughs) You know, Koheleth makes sense to me in that regard. And so anyway, uh, thank you again for sharing uh, these moments of our creative output. And if you enjoy our work, help us grow by sharing about us to your friends and family. Post a link on your social media, text a link to a friend. Help us by passing our work forward. And as always, visit our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. All kind of great things there for you. You can follow us on our YouTube channel, Instagram, Facebook, all those things. Next episode, we switch directions completely as we delve into the mind and world of Aldous Huxley and his most famous work, A Brave New World, which is going to be pretty much the opposite statement of Solomon and his wisdom. And again, as they say in Hebrew, shalom or peace out. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.